0: All right, welcome everyone. I'm glad you're here this evening. If you will, take your Bible and turn to Colossians 2. <clears throat> Colossians chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1. We're going to start in chapter 1. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak in this service. I have two recurring dreams when, uh, when I've got, you know, I, I preach somewhere almost every week, uh, most weeks throughout the year in, in some place. And all my, all my preaching ministry, I've had two recurring dreams. One is, it's time for me to preach and nobody showed up. <laughs> and um, my wife's heard enough of my sermons, so I can't even preach. If she's the only one here, I may as well not preach, you know. And then the other recurring dream is, I get up to preach and I forgot my notes. I, couldn't, I can't find my notes. And I'm not an uh, off-the-cuff or extemporaneous speaker. I've got to have notes. I've got to have it thought through. I've I, I got to know what I'm going to say. <clears throat> so I have my notes, and you're here. So it's going to be a decent night anyway. Uh, I came in earlier, and I, <clears throat> I won't say who it was, but I asked someone, have you had a good day? And they started their answer with, <sighs> and I said, I don't know if I even need to hear the rest of the answer. <laughs> I was sitting at the, at the um, table We were getting ready to eat. My wife was taking her mom to the doctor down in Martinsville, I think. And so it was just me and Emily. And it had been one of those particularly stressful days. You know, you have those days, right? And um, I'm praying for our meal. And I said, dear Lord, thank you for the food and, you know, a couple other things. And then I just took a breath and I said, amen. And then I asked Emily, I said, do you think if we just prayed, dear Jesus, Ah, amen. He would understand what we're saying? I think he would, wouldn't he? He would. Yes, he would. All right, Brother Jason just prayed, so I'm going to just read our text and get right into the lesson tonight. Does anybody not have a study sheet? I meant to ask that at first. We got. got to do have a few hands here, uh, one up toward the front and then a couple toward the back. Give Brother uh, John Darty two of them. He can't read very well. There you go. <clears throat> and the one up here, Brother Shannon. And Brother Jason. <clears throat> I want to share with you tonight uh, some thoughts from the book of Colossians. And this is not, <clears throat> this is not a full book study. I'm, I'm pulling out of the book what I call the Christian life according to Colossians. And I think, I, I, I have not done a study on all of Paul's epistles, but I think you could do the Christian life according to Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians. And, um, and you, could, you could work through all of Paul's epistles, and you're going to come up with some very common themes in all of them. But in each one of them, there's some unique aspects to, to what's taking place and how Paul is trying to encourage and edify the church to walk in Christ, to live in Christ, and so forth. And there's some great things uh, specific here to the book of Colossians. And this really is a two-part series, so maybe at some point in the future I'll have opportunity to give you the second part of it. Um, but I want to start reading in Colossians 1 and verse 1, just the first four verses that introduce the book. <coughs> Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. Now there's, of course, some similarity to that greeting, uh, with, with, between that greeting and, and the greeting in other churches, like the book of Philippians. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you is verse 3 of chapter 1 of Philippians. And so what we see in there is Paul's endearing heart toward the church of Colossae. We get into chapter two, and he's, he's addressing a specific problem that this church is facing. So I let, let's read verses one through 10, and then we'll go back and walk through these verses as we work through the, ma- the, the lesson. Chapter two, verse one, "'For I would that you knew "'what great conflict I have for you, "'and for them at Laodicea, "'and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh.'" That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I want you to see first of all tonight on your study sheet if you wanna fill in the blanks. The theme of this lesson is that right doctrine produces right living. And when, when we observe errant behavior, it is always because there is errant belief. We always live out of what we believe. We always live out of the truth that has that our mind has accepted. Uh, just like a muscle will, uh, I'm sorry, a a um, muscle will not function properly if it's not attached to a bone. Uh, you can have you could have a huge bicep, like kind of like mine. You could have a <laughs> joke. You could have a huge bicep, but if it's not attached at each end to a bone, it isn't going to operate the arm properly. And the skeletal system that serves as the framework for the church and for the believer is doctrine, the doctrines of God's word. You can have the greatest people, uh, socially speaking. You you can have people with giving hearts. You can have people with, with, with loving hearts. But if we are not unified around the right doctrine, the framework of the church is missing and the church can't be what it is supposed to be. The skeletal system upon which the church hangs and the life and our Christian life hangs is the doctrines of God's word. And another common theme throughout Paul's epistles is to remind us of the doctrine, to teach us of the doctrine, to talk about sound doctrine. So there's some similarity here with the book of Galatians. the, The Galatians were under attack by the Judaizers trying to add works to salvation, and that wrong teaching had caused some wrong living. And in Galatians three, verse three, here's how Paul said it to them. He said, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You were on the right track with truth, you've been fed some false teaching, and now you're getting off track and you're trying to live in your own flesh and, and do the, uh, live your Christian life in your own flesh. So the same point here in Colossians. The Colossian congregation was under attack by a group of Jews who were mixing legal ordinances, and you can read that if you continue on in chapter two, <clears throat> uh, circumcision, food regulations, uh, dietary restrictions, the Sabbath, the new moon, and other prescriptions of the Jewish calendar where w- w- they're trying to mix all that with the, with the Christian faith. The, the right word for that is called syncretism, the mixing of religions. For example, uh, you've, you've uh, seen... People from India with the big white headdress on, the Sikh religion, that's S-I-K-H, that's a blend of Islam and, um, and Hinduism. That's a syncretistic religion. Um, animists in Africa and in, and in some parts of Central and South Asia will mix Islam with their animism. And so it's all blended. And so the Jews were trying to blend in the Jewish regulations and feasts and observances and new moons and all of that stuff. They're trying to mix that in. And Paul's trying to show them how this mix of false teaching was going to negatively affect their Christian living. Because there is always a union between doctrine and practice. How you live, here's the second blank, is always determined by what you believe. How you live is always determined by what you believe. Correct theology will produce correct living. Uh, I had a college professor that said this frequently, you only really believe that which moves you to action. And we do. We live our lives based on what we believe in our mind. So there's no surprise really that our nation is in such a mess because of what people are believing. I never thought, never ever thought I would see the day in our country where there are pro-terrorist rallies. They're calling them pro-Palestinian. They're not pro-Palestinian, they're pro-Hamas. They're pro-terrorism. But you know why these students in these colleges are protesting uh, against this, uh, protesting on behalf of, I should say, these terrorists? Because of what they've been taught in the classroom and the lies they believe are producing the behavior that they're exhibiting. And so Paul is gonna show us here that the importance of right doctrine, it produces right living. If you you study Paul's epistles, I'm I'm gonna stop referring back to this after this, but if you study Paul's epistles, Romans one through 11 talk about the doctrines, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, very doctrinally rich, Romans 1 through 11. And then Romans 12, 1 says, uh, um, how does the verse start? Romans 12, 1. Somebody help me. I beseech you therefore. I was thinking of the word therefore, but I knew it didn't start with the word therefore. I beseech you therefore, because of what I just taught you in this rich doctrinal section of the scripture, you present yourself a living sacrifice to Christ. In Ephesians chapter one through three, he talks about our standing in heavenly places and, and we're in Christ and all of these rich doctrinal teachings and we get to chapter four, verse one of, of Ephesians and he says, walk worthy of the calling, uh, of, the, of the vocation wherewith you are called. And so Paul is, is dealing with that theme here in this book as well and he deals with it in, in four sub-themes, if I could call them that, in this vital letter uh, here to the to the uh, saints at Colossae. So number one on your sheet, the first admonition here, th- this is theme one of four that I wanna share with you in this two-part series whenever part two comes around. So we're only gonna, only gonna get to the first one tonight. Walk in divine wisdom. Walk in divine wisdom. Chapter two, verse one <clears throat> through 10 is where we find this particular theme. The first thing we find uh, is hold to truth and not opinions. This is letter A under, under that, uh, um, yeah, letter A under main point number one here. Hold to truth, not opinion. Uh, if we know that believing the wrong thing leads to wrong living, Paul is concerned that the Colossians might be sucked into this false teaching contrary to the gospel he had, he had, uh, um, he had taught them. So verse four, if you look at verse four, it says, it says, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The word beguile means to delude or deceive. I personally believe there are a lot of people who believe false teaching that are not necessarily deceivers. They don't have the purpose of messing up your life and deceiving your life. They're deceived themselves and they just propagate the deception they have come to believe. But there's a whole lot of false teaching that goes on that has the goal of deceiving you and beguiling you into believing something that is not true. And the other evidence of that is in verse four as well, beguile you with enticing words. The word enticing there just simply means persuasive language. They're very persuasive. They're very believable. What they say sounds plausible. False teachers are slick. There's always some truth in false teaching. Now what I fear that some of us, some of us who, who feel that we believe truth and we hold to truth, we reject some systems or, of teaching uh, because we know it's, it's, it's false, but we also reject the whole package, even the truth that's contained therein. And here's an example. I, I, I said this in my last Sunday morning sermon, uh, I'm not a Calvinist, but we, and we reject Calvinism but in Calvinism, they believe in strongly in the sovereignty of God. Now, if you throw out the sovereignty of God along with throwing out the package of Calvinism, you've got a serious problem because God is absolutely sovereign. God is in charge in this world. Can I get an amen right there? So there's always some truth in it, but we, here, we ha, here's what Paul's trying to say. However good it sounds, there's heresy in it. There's false teaching in it. Uh, Now think about where we're going with this because the world of the Colossians did not include television. They couldn't sit down and watch a movie. There was no radio to listen to. There was no social media. (gasps) Oh my goodness. They couldn't talk to their friends on the computer. Uh, Their beliefs and their, it was common for them just to go sit and listen to someone talk. It It was It was entertainment. Uh, What are y'all doing Friday night? Oh, we're going to go downtown. Somebody's giving a speech or somebody's giving a lecture on something. Uh, Somebody's promoting some cause. It was a good night of entertainment for them and they became thinkers, deep thinkers. It It was intriguing. It was the end thing, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, but it was the end thing to philosophize, to sit and listen to someone talk about the deeper things of life. So why is Paul so concerned about this? Let's go back to verse one of chapter two. Verse one says, for I would that you know what great conflict I have for you. And he feels the same way toward those at Laodicea. He mentions in the middle of that verse. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, I I, I have a heart for all of you, even if I haven't met you as part of this church at Colossae. And he's reminding them that he had suffered to bring them the truth. I came to you with great conflict, I came to you in persecution, I endured persecution among you. And, and verse two he says, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Why did Paul suffer such conflict to bring them to the truth? It was so they would know God so they would know God. Ephesians 1, verse 18, Paul expresses this to the church at Ephesus when he said, I'm praying for you, and I'm paraphrasing that part, he said, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. Have you ever, have you ever had someone try and explain something to you and you just didn't quite get it and you say, can you, can you explain that again? And they go through it one more time and you say, oh, I see. You ever said that? You didn't see anything, all they were giving you was words, but you saw it right here. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1.18, that you will see the truth, you will see the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. And Colossians 1.9, he prayed for that church, uh, for this church rather, just one chapter back, to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. Why did Paul suffer so much to bring them the gospel message? So they would know Christ. Now the next question, what is the value of knowing God? look at verse, verse uh, three in whom we 're talking about God the Father and Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God is the source of all truth, and everything you want to philosophize about everything that you hear, every teaching that comes your, comes across your your, your, your way has to be measured against the God who is the source of all truth. Verse five, he speaks of his affection and his love for them. He said, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit. He felt a little bit helpless here, but he loved them like a father loves his children. How many of you have uh, students uh, who are away in college right now? Pastor Wall, uh, Brother Tidball, Brother Handy, Uh, Mrs. Charles Wood, right, Uh, the Ganaways, and I probably missed a hand or two, and uh, next year at this time, I'll have a daughter away in college, and I don't even wanna think about it, because the idea of dropping her off there just tears my heart out already. My wife says, when we drop Emily off at college, I'm not gonna cry all the way home. She's going to Pensacola. She said, I'm going to the beach. Well, you can go to the beach if you want to, and if you drag me to the beach, I'll just cry at the beach. You know, I'm gonna cry. I know I am. But Paul Paul almost felt hopeless, or helpless, rather, for the church at Colossi, and, and he had done everything he could do for them. He had taught them truth. And and in Acts chapter twenty, when Paul is meeting with the, the elders of Ephesus and he's about to walk away, in Acts twenty, verse thirty two, he said, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I give you to God and his truth. You know, as a parent, you do everything you can to raise your child right, to build their character, to help them learn how to make right decisions because the day's gonna come, they go off to school and you're not looking over their shoulder, you're not reminding them, no, you shouldn't do that, no, that's not a good decision. They're, they're on their own, so to speak. The day's gonna come and, 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 here, and that's exactly what Paul is describing here. I did everything I could to give you the truth and point you in the right direction, and, and I wish I could, I'm i with you in spirit still, but I'm not there to tell you what's right and wrong. You're gonna have to learn where to find truth. And in him, in whom, the God the Father, God and, and Jesus Christ, verse three, in them are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse six, please. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. The theme I gave you at the very beginning, that right doctrine produces right living, that's what verse six is all about. As you received Christ, so walk ye in him. There is the link between theology and behavior. And some of the Colossians had begun to be affected by this false teaching. They had begun to abandon the doctrine Paul had taught them and by which they were saved. Verse seven, please. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Abounding therein with thanks. As ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Uh, if, if you have, okay, if you have a child away in college and, and they're going through some difficult times and you get on the phone with them, you're going to, if they, if they talk to you about what they're dealing with at that point, you're gonna remind them of what's right. You're gonna remind them of, of, of what is right and what you tried to teach them before. And here's Paul trying to help the Colossian Christians to root their lives in Jesus Christ. That they would know him, they would walk in him. Rooted has the image of of a strong tree with a thick root system deep in the earth. Established the idea of constancy. The idea of of not not wavering. Uh, Ephesians 4 would describe this as not carried about with every wind of doctrine. The idea here is that truth must be a filter for everything you hear, for everything you're taught. It is not the opinions of men that should guide our lives, but as ye have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hold to truth, not opinions. Next, write this one down if you will. Avoid all that is not rooted in Christ. Avoid all that is not rooted in Christ. Verse seven, we just read, rooted and built up in him. And verse eight begins with this word, beware. Beware, now listen how strong this language is. Beware lest any man spoil you. Spoil means to ruin. Uh, Someone gave us today some, some deer meat. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. Can't wait to eat it. But if I took the deer meat home and laid it on the counter and said, you know, we don't, I don't want that today. Let's eat that on Saturday. It would lay there on the counter and spoil, wouldn't it? Paul's concern for the Colossian Christians is because of the false teaching they were listening to that their lives would be spoiled. It also has the idea of being carried away captive, like the spoils of war. Uh, you could, in our day, you could liken this to being a victim of fraud. Did you hear about the, the guy whose last name, there's a football player in the NFL. I think he plays for the Baltimore Ravens, which is one of my least favorite teams. I root for the Miami Dolphins and whoever's playing the Baltimore Ravens. There's a guy on that team, his last name is Likely. And I saw this the other day, that somebody, last name of Likely, they named their son Scam. And he has a lot of trouble getting answers to his emails. <laughs> but this, is, this, is, this uh, phrase right here, lest any man spoil you, uh, could be likened to being the victim of a scam, the victim of a fraud. He, he sees these people as being led away captive to erroneous philosophy. Uh, they're leading captive their understanding and leading captive their behavior. Because with your beliefs go your behavior. He classifies this teaching, this corrupting teaching, in into three groups. I want to give you these three groups because this analogy of spoil makes this thing a declaration of war. Now, <clears throat> we live in this world, but we're not to be of this world, right? We're commanded very strongly in 1 John 2:15, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And Paul is, is trying to help these. Uh, people understand and help us understand that we're in a war and, and the false teachings that are going to come across our way will lead you off captive and they will greatly affect the way you live your life. I think we would be shocked if we could really look at this with the eyes of God and we could look at our lives and the, the decisions we make and the process by which we make our decisions how many of those processes are not necessarily guided and and strictly following along spiritual, biblical lines. We're so influenced by this world. We, We are inundated with messages every day through social media and through TV and whatever we watch and whatever we read. We're inundated with philosophies that are contrary to the Word of God that are contrary to truth, contrary to to spiritual spiritual truth. And and so this is a war. When when he says, beware lest any man spoil you, he is saying, stand up and fight this war. He breaks it down into three categories. Here they are for you. Are Are you ready? Philosophy and vain deceit. Philosophy and vain deceit. This word philosophy really means curious speculations that originate in in the human mind. Philosophy, strictly defined, is a love of wisdom. It is one who loves pursuing, discovering, and analyzing things. Now, is there anybody here you you feel like your personality uh, makeup is kind of built around an analytical mind? How many of you feel like you have an analytical mind? I do to a degree. I think it's part of the human process for all of us, but some some really have this. But this pursuing and discovering and analyzing things was a highly regarded virtue among the Gentiles. They prided themselves on being logically disciplined. They prided themselves on, on critical inquiry into the basic questions of life. In Acts 17, verse 21, Paul is preaching at Athens, and here's how he describes them. He said, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Did you know that the word philosophy in verse eight right here is the only use of this word in the whole Bible, and it is a warning? Because this can become the kind of thinking that appeals to a man's ego, do you know why an atheist is an atheist? Because he's got a huge ego. You agree with that? He thinks that this, this thinking organ that he possesses in his head, is on equal terms with the God who created him. Well, that's a big ego, isn't it? And and it can appeal to our ego. It can appeal to our intellect. The natural desire of man is to set himself up uh, up uh, equal to God and, and th- think, to think we can find the answers within ourselves. Uh, in the first century, I read this uh, in an article, exploring fundamental questions, philosophy, and, and this, this vain deceit, meant exploring fundamental questions about existence, ethics, about knowledge. There were philosophical schools, such as Stoicism, Epicureanism, and they gain followers who are interested in seeking wisdom and seeking practical guidance for navigating all the issues of life. But the big problem is that these things are not rooted in Christ. They're not rooted in Christ. I don't know if there's any place to better illustrate this than in Tibetan Buddhism. <clears throat> I've been to Kathmandu, Nepal. We have an associate who is, uh, who is there. Uh, learning the language and, and we're translating the scripture into one of the Tibetan languages. But in the monasteries, and they're, they dot the whole landscape, they have gold roofs and so you spot them all over the place. And in these monasteries, they will spend hours a day sometimes just sitting there talking about truth, talking about life, and for them it is a virtue. It is like the highest level of religious involvement is to go very, very deep into these discussions about which they never find the ultimate answers. They, there is no absolute truth for them. They just keep searching and asking and digging and, and, and probing and learning, but it's not rooted in Christ. So they never get to the truth. They never get to the right answers. 1 Timothy 1 verse 4 says it like this, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than edifying which is in faith. So do if your curious speculations lead you away from being rooted in the truth of Christ, you're headed off in a dangerous direction. That's how Paul's describing these people who are trying to spoil your life. They're, they're really good about going deep into the matter, going deep into the subject, but they're, they don't have truth because they're not rooted in Christ. Now, <clears throat> I, like to, I like to point this out that Paul's warning is not about philosophy itself because all of us have a philosophy. Christianity is a particular philosophy and view of life, isn't it? It's a view of God. And, and we like to sit around, even, even us who, who believe the truth, we like to sit around and argue the finer points of, our, of the doctrines we believe, don't we? And I, I get really aggravated sometimes because my whole ministry <clears throat> as a missionary, my whole ministry is to is to propagate the Word of God in languages that don't have Scripture. So we're talking about people that, that have never read John three sixteen. They don't know who Adam and Eve are. Uh, they don't know what sin is. Now, they have some uh, built-in idea of what wrong is or guilt is, but they don't have any concept of what sin is. They don't have any any basis to go we have a biblical basis on which the whole world we see the whole world through a bible basis a bible lens they don't have any of that we talked about that a few weeks ago before missions conference but i get aggravated sometimes when people want to argue the finer points of doctrine and say well you know i can't i can't support this ministry or i can't be part of that ministry because we disagree on these things and I'm not talking about the major things like uh, the, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, uh, the second coming of Christ. I'm not talking about those major things. I'm talking about when we start ar- arguing the finer points and we split with everybody over these finer points when a third of our world has never read John 3, And it, it appeals to our intellect, it appeals to our ego to go deep into these things. And, and I've said this before, we in the American church, maybe, maybe this is not so good, but we have the luxury of arguing the finer points. And sometimes that sidetracks us from reaching those who don't know the major points. They don't know, they don't know any of it. So Paul's warning is not against philosophy itself because we have a philosophy, but it's, it's a warning against philosophy that is not rooted in Christ. It, it, is, it is about vain deceit, it's about human tradition, So, the warning is against teaching that rests on these curious speculations without consideration of the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, It's also described here in this point as philosophy and vain deceit. The word vain means empty, and the word deceit means lies. So, these are empty lies. What these people are arriving at, the conclusions they're coming to, we're warned in the Bible about the deceitfulness of riches. We're warned about the deceitfulness of sin. We're warned about the deceitfulness of lust. And here in Colossians 2, we're warned about the deceitfulness of curious philosophizing, just looking for some new thing. There's a lot of charm in them. There can be a lot of tantalizing ideals in them, but there's no value in talking about concepts which are not rooted in Christ. Number two is the traditions of men. The traditions of men, these are customs that originate in the, the practiced behavior down through history, the, the behavior of men. So philosophy and vain deceit originates in the mind of men. These are traditions that originated in the practice or the behavior of men. Now, if if what we do rests on nothing more than that's the way we've always done it, that's not ground enough to hold to it. I'm not suggesting uh, we start changing everything that's not found in the Bible. You know, there's a I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second, but <clears throat> I heard this. I read an article about this recently. Somebody said, well, Jesus never addressed transgender ideology, so it's, it, it must not be wrong. Jesus, Just because Jesus didn't address it specifically doesn't mean it's not wrong. There's a whole Bible here that talks about who we are, and we're made in the image of God. There's a whole, there's a whole foundation of truth about this, right? So somebody says, well, why do you have church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? That's not the Bible. Well, that's not reason to forsake it. But the idea here is that we don't build what we believe on tradition alone. The Catholic Church is very well known for building what they believe on tradition. This is the way the church does it. This is what the church has decided. And tradition isn't wrong if, if, if it is filtered through truth. Judaism is built on traditions. Do you know that um, the, the Talmud, by the way, one of the reasons they rejected Jesus is because he went against their traditions. He rejected their traditions. Remember in Matthew 5, several times he said, ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. Oh wait, what? you're changing everything. This isn't right. We can't have change. You heard what they said to the Baptist pastor about um, who do you have changing the light bulbs? And he said, change? We don't change anything around here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know that the, the Judaism is built on, on traditions. They have high respect for traditions. So the Jewish Talmud, have you heard the term, the Talmud? Some of you probably know what it is. It's a collection of writings that cover the full gamut of Jewish laws and traditions. It is the source of Jewish religious law. It is 2,711 pages written in six main sections. There is the Zeraim, which uh, deals primarily with agricultural laws. There's the Moed, which deals with the laws of Sabbath and holy days. There is the Nashim, and that word means women. It deals with the laws concerning women. There is the Nezikin, that deals with seminal. I'm sorry, civil and criminal laws. There is the the Kodashim that deals with laws about sacrifices, the temple, the dietary laws, and the Taharot deals with laws about ritual purity. You got six volumes, 2,711 pages of the traditions of men. And if if we do what we do only because that's the way we've always done it, we need to go a little deeper and make sure that what we're doing is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in the truth. Um, In verse 8 you see the very last phrase there, and not after Christ. So this philosophy in vain deceit, the tradition of men, and the third thing we're gonna look at right here is the rudiments of the world, and he's warning against those things that are not rooted in Christ. So let's talk about the rudiments of the world. These are foundational principles that originate in the system of mankind. So we have philosophy and vain deceit that originates in the mind of man, the traditions of men that originate in behavior of men, and the rudiments of the world that originate in the system in which we live. Foundational principles. You go home and look this up yourself and, and, and you'll know I'm telling the truth. The word rudiments means elemental spirits. It means spiritual forces. Do you know there are spiritual forces in this world? Notice what it says here in, um, where is it? Verse 10. We'll get back to this in a moment. But ye are complete in him which is the head of all. Look at those next next three words. Principality and power. The rudiments of this world are rooted in elemental spirits. They are rooted in the angelic world, uh, the demonic angelic world. And this world is a system that we cannot be seduced by. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? This is a war we're declaring against philosophy and vain deceit, against the traditions of men, and against the rudiments of this world because the goal of all of these things is to beguile you and to deceive you and to spoil your life. The same idea here is this, if, it's not built upon, if it is built upon this world, it's not after Christ. Now, I challenge you to find me anywhere in the Bible that the Bible speaks favorably about this world system. I quoted from 1 John 2 earlier that we're to love not the world. We're not to be guided and led and ruled and directed by the ways of this world and the philosophies of this world. Why would we build our life on a system that is against God? Why would we look to the world for direction and inspiration and wisdom? James 3, verse 15 speaks of a wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. That's the wisdom of this world. Um, People have a lot of different beliefs and there's a lot of strange ones out there, aren't they? If you're gonna build your life on Christ and you're gonna grow in grace, you gotta go to the source of truth. You've got to go to the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't build your life on that which is groundless and has a faulty foundation. The parable of Jesus with the man who built his house on the rock stood firm. The man who built his house on the sand when the storm came and the wind blew, it washed it away. Paul wanted these Christians to be established in Christ and grow in him. Because Christ is to be the basis of every aspect of our life. And the only way to ensure that for Paul was to beseech them to beware of these false teachings. There's a lot of stuff out there that sounds intriguing. And, and let me give you a couple of examples. Things that are kind of grab your attention and make you, well, you know, I never thought about it like that. A few years back, there was what's known, what came to be known rather as the Free Grace Movement where grace became such a dominant theme and I, and I love the word grace and grace is a dominant theme so I hope you understand where I'm going with this but the free grace movement said that because our sins have been paid for by Christ all our sins, past, present and future it doesn't matter how we live because we're all under grace well I, I want you to know it does matter how we live the Bible says in Titus 2.11 the grace of God that, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us That means disciplining us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust. we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So just because I'm under grace and I'm not gonna spend eternity in hell and my sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. But that's what the free grace movement was. And I have friends who were sucked into this and began teaching their people. I I have a friend in Alabama, I've preached in his church, and he got so deep into this free grace movement, his church kicked him out. We, we don't believe like that, Pastor. I don't know where you're taking us, but this is not right. We can't just live however we want. Um, open theism is another one. Um, the idea that God doesn't know what's going to happen next. This is what I, went, I talked about earlier, the sovereignty of God. I believe in God's foreknowledge. He knows everything. Absolutely everything. Uh, he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. I, I think God looked at, could look in, in the eternity past, God could look at my life and I have a free will. I like what Charles Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God and the free will, free will of man are like two rails of a train track. They, they, they go side by side all the way down the track. They never cross each other. They're both true. He's sovereign. I have a free will. And you can't explain it to satisfy the human mind, can you? Because it's deeper than we can understand. But I think God could look at my life in eternity past and know the day that I would trust him as my savior. He knew exactly what I would, when, when I would do that. And then when I face certain decisions in my life, I think God knew, if I make this decision, my life will go this way. If I make this decision, my life will go that way. And so I made this decision, and he knew that, and so my life went this way. And so God knows everything and every decision and every detour I'm gonna take through my life, and he's still sovereignly leading in my life. Does that make sense to you? If it doesn't, ask Pastor Walt, he can explain it deeper. God knows what's gonna happen. For you to say that God doesn't know, it's just... That's not rooted in Christ. Um, the wideness, here's another one, the wideness of God's mercy. Universalism. Everybody eventually is gonna make it to heaven. You know, God loves everybody. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Annihilationism. A lot of prominent, prominent evangelicals uh, decided they didn't believe in an eternal hell. And so lost people are going to die and they're going to go to hell. And even the devil, they're just going to go to a place where they're just cremated. They're burned up. They, they suffer for their sins, but they won't suffer for all of eternity. That's not what the Bible teaches. So if you stay rooted in Christ, listen carefully to this. If you stay rooted in Christ, it closes the door to these errors in our thinking that can lead to errors in our living. Number C, letter C. I think it's not working on me for me. Can you hit that button, brother Kurt? You're playing checkers again. <laughs> Just forward it to the next slide. Number, number letter C. I'll tell you what it is. Enjoy the fullness of Christ. Enjoy the fullness of Christ. Look at verse nine. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I quote this verse all the time when I speak, on the, uh, speak about the deity of Christ because this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible on this subject. In Jesus dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. Uh, three things I want to give you onto this. Are you ready for them? Number one, Jesus is God. No, listen carefully, no philosophical embellishments needed. He's God. What he says is right. He's the source of all truth. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is superior to any and all teachings of men. Christ possesses in himself all the fullness of deity. Turn your Bible, if you have to turn the page, look at chapter 3, verse 11 of Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 11. Where there is neither Greek uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You know what that verse says? It, and he's speaking to the Gentiles here in this Colossian church, but it says not only is Christ everything, and in him is all the fullness of the Godhead, but he is everything for everybody. Uh, there's no group of people that are outside the realm of Christ's authority and help and grace glory. Hebrews 1 uh, speaks of Jesus being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews 1, 3. So Jesus is God, number one. Number two, Jesus rules everything. Jesus rules everything. There, it's working for me now. Good. Look at verse 10. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Those two words refer to superhuman agencies, whether it be angelic or demon, demonic. And Jesus is over all of them. Do you know the devil can't do anything outside the authority of Jesus Christ? It, that's illustrated in the book of Job. He couldn't touch Job until God gave him permission. And he couldn't afflict his body until God gave him permission. And God gave permission for the devil to, uh, to um, what did he say to Peter, Uh, sift you as sweet. The devil, uh, Satan had desired to sift you as sweet. Jesus gave permission to the devil to sift Peter as sweet. If he hadn't given permission, it wouldn't have happened because he's the ruler of all principalities and powers. This was very important for the Colossians to hear because they worshiped angels as intermediaries between God and man. They needed to know that these angels that we think go between us and God, he's in charge of all of them. Do you know that uh, you've heard of Ramadan, the Muslim uh, fast, 40-day fast it takes place, I think, in the spring of the year, around April, somewhere in there. On the 27th or 28th night of Ramadan, the, the uh, m- Muslims will spend all night in prayer and they get to the highest place they can get to. If they can climb to the top of the minaret, which is the tower on the top of the mosque where they broadcast their, uh, you know, Allah, Bar, and all that stuff, Allah, uh, whatever it is, Um, But if they can get it, they get as high as they can get because they think on the 27th and 28th night of Ramadan, the air is thick with angels. And and here's what they say, so thick that if you stick a pin in the air, you will prick an angel. And they believe the only way to get their prayers to Allah is if an angel will carry their prayer to Allah. Paul says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. That's why everything has to be rooted in Jesus. Jesus is God, Jesus rules everything, and number three, Jesus satisfies. I love this phrase, and I, I wish I had a whole sermon on it, but we're bringing this to a close. Look at verse nine again with me, please, because <clears throat> I, I, I want you to see the link. For in him, notice those, those two words, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Verse 10, and ye are complete, say the next two words, in him. Jesus is not possessed by God. God dwells in him. He is God. And listen, and we are in him. And we have everything we need. The reason Paul so strongly desired these people to be rooted in Christ is because we are in Christ. Uh, Jesus will complete your life. Listen, there's nothing you need in the Christian life you can't find in Jesus. Uh, Brother Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy preached Sunday morning from 2 Peter 1 and in verse three it says, according as his divine power hath given unto us, Do you know what the next two words are? all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He is God and he satisfies because we have everything we need in him. That's a great text on the incarnation of Christ and I think that's the greatest mystery in all the universe is that God became a man and dwelt among us. We see in this passage of scripture, Christ set in opposition to the philosophy, the tradition, the philosophy and vain deceit of men, the traditions of this world, the rudiments of this world. There is an emptiness in the human soul that cannot be filled with man's philosophy. It cannot be uh, rounded out with man's traditions. Um, It cannot be based on the things of this world. There's no substitute ever been found for the sustenance we have in Christ. He is our sufficiency in all things, isn't he? Let me close with this quote from William Burkett, who was a Puritan writer and author and commentator. Let no man impose upon you by a lame and imperfect philosophy. There is no need of that. For now there is introduced an absolute and complete doctrine, namely that of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has the fullness of all divine wisdom in him. Isn't that great? How many of you know the chorus, Christ is all I need? Will you sing it with me? Here we go, ready? Christ is all I need. Sing it with me. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. Have you never heard this before? Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. There's a second verse, but let's pray and close. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being everything we need. Uh, Lord, may we weigh everything about our lives, every decision we make, every choice we make, uh, every guiding philosophy that we live by, may it all be rooted in in the one in whom is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Please help us to apply this truth in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.